Hi, this is Ron Gilbert, and welcome to the weekly Thimbleweed Park stand-up meeting. And since this is the first podcast of the month, we are doing questions from the blog. And I think we're going to not do the stand-up um, this week and uh, just go right into the questions. There were a lot of really good questions this month. I think this month has been the best month for questions, and I think we have a lot more questions we want to answer than normal. So we're just going to go right into them. First question is from Natalja. Why is the glass broken on the window in the radio station? Well, in Thimbleweed Park, everything is pretty old and run down, and certainly things like the radio station are, um, you know, have seen better days. So one of the reasons that the um, glass on the uh, DJ booth is cracked is just because it's a mess in there. I mean, there's water dripping from the ceiling. There's other things, but that's why. Yeah, a lot of the town is in disrepair. If you look at some of the screenshots we posted, a lot of the buildings in Thimbleweed are closed, and it's really kind of a town that's seen its heyday. All right, the next question is from Ken Shepard. Are you going to put a lot of Easter eggs in the game to find? And uh, that is, uh, yes, very much so, especially for people who've played our previous games. Certainly, I'm working on a lot of art-related Easter eggs, and I'm sure that there's going to be a whole bunch more uh, coming up. There's a lot of text Easter eggs, and there's actually gameplay Easter eggs that we plan on putting in that we haven't put in yet. Yeah, Easter eggs are fun. I, I enjoy I enjoy putting Easter eggs in. The other thing about Easter eggs is we're sort of, you know, as we work on the game and continue to play it, we see like all kinds of opportunities to add more Easter eggs just because it suddenly makes sense. It, you know, it's comedy gold. Of course, all the all the Easter eggs will be run, you know, through the focus test to make sure they're funny enough. <laughs> I think when I'm doing them, I, I'm actually doing them for Ron and Gary. <laughs> I want to get you guys to laugh, and then sometimes yeah. I don't tell you to do check the so and so, and like a month later, the guys comes back. Hey, dude. well, you know, I I put in the uh, animation, I put blinking in the characters, so the characters blinked, and I didn't say anything because I wanted to see if you and Gary noticed that the characters were blinking, and I think like two weeks went by, <laughs> and that, like neither of you noticed the characters were blinking. <laughs> they just seemed to be warmer all of a sudden. Felt more like real world. Well, I think things like the blinking are kind of like that it is just very natural and it just it just feels like they should be doing it so you don't really notice it so the next question comes from matthias cedarball how many story ideas did ron and gary toss out before settling upon this detective story well the answer to that is ron and i brainstormed I'm going to say for a few months at the very beginning of this when we decided to do it. And we came up with probably at least a dozen different ideas. And ultimately what happened is Ron came up with the idea for the whole murder detective story. And then we took a lot of the other stories. Each of the characters actually has their own story art. And for the, most of those were actually additional story ideas that we came up with independently of Thimbleweed Park and then kind of wove all those characters together. I don't know, Ron, do you have any other? Yeah, the way the way I remember it is is we had like, four or five stories that we really, really liked. It, you know, had the idea of doing this more anthology approach to it. We'll just do them all, all at once, framed by the detectives. I might do a blog post where I put up... Some of the other ideas? The, yeah, the, the rough draft of our big brainstorm, all the story things. I think that might be interesting. Spoiler-free, of course, obviously, but yeah. Yeah. Next question comes from Milo Casagrande. Can't remember if this has already been asked but will there be a map to travel between locations in the game? Yes, there will be a map, just like the Monkey Island. Uh, in, in Monkey Island, where you move the characters around the map, there is a map in the game, and you'll be able to move around uh, Thimbleweed County. All right, next question is from TM. 
You've mentioned in earlier interviews that in Maniac Mansion and Zack McCracken, many of the characters were somewhat based on real people. Is this the case also in Thimbleweed Park, or all the characters fictional only? Um, I don't think Ron and I could make a game where we weren't like, you know, taking people we knew and kind of sliding in there uh, sideways to, not not to make fun of them, mind you. but No, you it's, know, to- it's totally about making fun of them. Yeah, but, but yes, uh, quite a few characters in all the games I think we've done uh, were either based on people we knew or conglomerate kind of, you know, uh, a melding of, of people we knew, and there's certainly some of that here. There's there's also some just completely made-up characters, but there are a good number of characters that are based on people we know in real life. Yeah, I find when creating characters, it is sometimes easier to base them on real people that I know, just in that the real people have these fleshed-out backstories, and so it's a little bit easier for me to you know pull dialogue and situations and stuff if I've if I've got these fully developed characters, you know, which you do if you're basing them on somebody you know. Yeah, and and, and there's no way that Ron and I would know anybody who is odd enough to be in this game in real life. <laughs> Next question comes from Marco. How many Thimbleweed Park copies do you need to sell in order to make Thimbleweed Park 2 Ransom's Revenge? One million copies. No, um, in any case, depending on how people, um, you know, receive the game and if it does well, certainly I think we'd be looking at a sequel. That's kind of what you do. And, and for what it's worth, I think there are, you know, as I'm going to say as complex as this story is, there, there are more stories that can be kind of told in this universe with these characters, I think. So the answer would be if, you know, it's successful and everybody, you know, finds it as engaging as I think it's going to be, we probably will go down this road. Whether it's called Ransom's Revenge or not, I, I can't say, you know. Yeah, I like that title. Next question comes from Alex Siegel. Just curious, will different areas and stages be set in different times of the day? In other words, will certain stages be set during daytime and others in nighttime, like in Monkey Island 2, where Fat Island was in the day and Scab Island was at night? Thimbleweed Park is all set. Part of the game is told through these flashbacks, and originally the Ransom's flashback in the circus was going to happen during the daytime, where the rest of the game uh, happens at nighttime. But we kind of ditched that idea, mostly for uh, work reasons. The, redoing the circus at night and during the day was just going to be a lot of work, and is something that we kind of had to scrub for that. But I think it's okay. I, I don't think it's weird that all this stuff happens at night. I think it works out okay. Yeah, we'll do we'll do daytime and ransom's revenge. Yeah, that's all during the day. All right, next question. Brian Ruff asks, "Do you guys see virtual reality as a feasible platform for a game like Thimbleweed Park, or as a VR version? I'm talking about third-person view where the art would remain the same, but the parallaxing layers would pop out a bit in a stereo effect." Uh, yeah, I think this would actually be really interesting. Um, I got a couple of Oculus Rift dev kits. Uh, and it is something I wanted to play around with doing just that is because we, even though the game is, is all in 2D, we actually have a lot of 3D information because we do the parallax layers and the characters walk behind things that, you know, we could kind of, you know, do a lot of shifting and left, right, you know, uh, eye views for those things. And it might look kind of interesting. There's no time in the schedule and the budget for it, but it's something that we might play with a little bit, you know, when we have some free time. But yeah, I, I think it could be neat. Next one is from Norman. Unlike when classic adventure games were being released, everybody now is on the internet and can use Google. Does this change how you design puzzles to encourage people not to just Google anything that seems remotely difficult? 
Well, yeah, I, from my point of view, I, I don't do anything differently. I figure that it, it's definitely easier to succumb to looking something up since you're right on the computer, you can just search for it. But you know, there are people who had hint books before and they could do the same thing with a hint book and it's just a matter of self-control. And when I play a game like this, I'll, I'll go for quite a while until it just gets unpleasantly frustrating and then I might look it up. And if I find that the answer was something there's no way I could ever have thought of, then to me that means the game was faulty in some way. And if it's an answer I think I could have found out, I, I kind of beat myself up for not being a little more intelligent and trying harder. But I don't do anything differently in terms of design. I agree with you. I don't think there's anything you really can do. If, if people want to look up the answers and they want to play the game by just uh, going through a walkthrough, people are going to do that. And you, you really can't stop them. And I don't think there's any way to design a puzzle that would prevent that, except just having a lot of randomness in the puzzles, which I don't I don't think is good. And I know for me, when I play games, I really try to not use a hint guide because I know as soon as I start using a hint guide, I just can't stop. And so I really try to not do it. And, I, and I've heard from other people that it's kind of the same way. And certainly we live in kind of a different world today than when we did these games originally in the 80s. Uh, you know, I guess we, we had like 1-800-STAR-WARS or something like that before. But for the most part, you know, people just had to figure this stuff out. And I think that, you know, conversely, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's really interesting about, you know, having the Internet available, like how we can find out what people think immediately as well. So people might give us feedback on, you know, puzzles and how hard they were or how easy they were to figure this out with the Internet. Next question is from Jape. Would you rather lose a lung or kidney or lose the ability to work in the games industry? <laughs> so, Gary, you start. Oh, uh, hmm. I think I'm already losing a kidney, so I'll just just say, what the hell, just a kidney. You know, I think I think, I think think at my age, you know, it doesn't really matter. I think I need my both my lungs because I have to breathe, but, you know, I'll go with the kidney. Now, nobody better sh – I better not wake up in a bathtub full of ice, you know, tomorrow morning or something, but, uh, <laughs> you know. David, what's your answer? I, I think I'd rather lose the ability to work in the games industry. <laughs> um, at this point, there's a whole bunch of other things. Wow, that's a dedication, David. I know it is. But there's so many other things that I love doing that, um, although this is my first choice, I think I could probably find something else I like as much. So I probably would keep my kidney. Yeah, that's a tough question. I I don't know what I would do if I wasn't working in the games business. I'm certainly not trained or competent to do anything else. I think I would have to go with losing a kidney. You see Ron working at like Burger King or something like that? I don't think so. No, I'm way too grumpy to work in a service industry. Do not put me in front of customers. Okay, next question is from In Exile. Since you're bringing Thimbleweed Park to the Xbox One, do you plan to include some especially creative slash fun slash obscure achievements that maybe go beyond just having to beat the game? What do you think about achievements in general? We are going to have achievements uh, in the game. I think Steam has achievements and, you know, obviously both of the mobile stores have achievements and Xbox has achievements and 
you know, I don't know that you could get away with not doing achievements in a game these days. So um, I think Microsoft might even have a requirement that you have to have achievements. I know that um, leaderboards are optional, but they may even have an a, a achievement requirement. But yeah, we will have achievements. But I want to make sure that the achievements of the games are things that are very clever. It's like, I don't, I don't like give me achievements. I don't like achievements that you do through the normal course of playing the game. I think achievements should be things that are clever that you really have to figure out. We definitely will have them. Derek Reisdorf asks, who will be the unlucky soul that has to QA test all 3,563 of the answering machine messages the backers will be submitting? Um, I nominate Gary. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm not doing anything else. Do I, do I hear a second? Do I hear a second on that? Sure, second. <laughs> okay, Gary. Gary's going to do it. Oh, okay. I'll especially be interested in listening to the ones in foreign languages and then repeating those to people who understand that language and see if I get slapped. You know, one thing that uh, we were talking about was maybe crowdsourcing it, where once we get all the answer between messages, we create a little website where people can go through and listen to them and then they can flag them, you know, if they think there's anything inappropriate or that the text translations are completely inaccurate on them. And then we can just go through and look at ones that we have have an abnormally large number of flags on them or something. Because one of the things about the answering machine messages is we'd like people to be able to record them in their native language. So if you want to have your answering machine message be in German or French or Spanish, you can go ahead and do that as long as you provide an English uh, translation. So I think it's more than just us listening to almost 4,000 messages, but it's also potentially listening to them in foreign languages. So it's definitely going to be a big job for somebody. Gary. It's a big job for Gary. <laughs> sure. I mean, that's why I make the big bucks already. <laughs> Wait, we're making bucks? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, I get that blurred out number, you know. I'm not sure what it is. It's blurred out on the spreadsheet, so I've never been actually exactly sure how much it really is. Well, the amount's blurred out on your check, too. <laughs> <laughs> Next question comes from Arik. Where does the name Zach McCracken come from? Well... I wish we had the creator of Zach McCracken here to actually ask him, but we don't. So I'm, I don't think we'll be. I don't think we'll be able to. <laughs> Is anybody qualified to answer this question? Well, I could probably take a guess. I'm not sure. Yeah, why don't you just just make something up, David? Uh, well, the original name for the character was Jason when I was doing the first part of the design, and then we had this meeting that all the designers at the time came to and we just brainstormed a bunch of stuff trying to get the game to be funnier and a little more wacky and there was actually ron's push to make it go in that direction steve arnold our general manager pulled out of a marin county telephone book and just started looking for names and trying ones until we all, we all liked them and we, we all liked zach as the first one and mccracken as the last one and i'm not sure how many we came up with before that but um it all came out of that one meeting and now it's a part of game history. It is. All right. Next question is from Jamette. Is there any progress on giving Kickstarters and PayPal backers the ability to up their pledges? Uh, it's a really good question. And I get several emails a week from people asking this very question. And you'd think it would be an easy thing to solve. And we've been trying to solve it for several months now. But it actually is is um, a little bit difficult because there's just a lot of information to track if people want to up their pledge. You know, we do need to know what the original pledge was. We need to know what the new pledge is. We need to know the difference. And 
we thought we had a service that would um, do this for us, but it ended up that they just wanted way too much money and their backend management of stuff was really not very good. So we're definitely looking at some ways to do this. And I know there's a lot of people that want to, um, and we're doing our best. And we will let you know in the blog as soon as we have a solution to this problem. I would expect, and you can cut this out if it's not right, but we should probably have a way to do this by the end of the year, do you think? Well, I mean, that's what we've been saying for a long time. <laughs> I think we've been saying by the end of the month, by the end of the month, so. Okay, well. I don't, I don't know anymore. Okay. You just didn't say which month. That's true, I didn't. Next question is from Christian. Does the game keep all the scripts and rooms in memory all the time, or does it swap them in and out like Scum did? Yeah, and Scum did. Scum, you know, the original Scum on the Commodore 64 had 19K of memory that we had to play with. That was K. And uh, Chip Morningstar, who was one of the programmers of Lucasfilm, who went on to do Habitat, they had a really nice heat management system in Habitat where it could uh, move things in and out of memory uh, on demand. And the game scripters really didn't even have to worry about what was in memory or not. And and Scum took that whole memory management system from Habitat. Yeah, it was, it was really great. But we were also very limited on memory. We don't really have the same limitations on memory. The, the scripts, you know, all the scripts for Thimbleweed Park is just amazingly small. So what we do is we load the rooms at the beginning of the game. They all go into memory. All the code goes into memory at once. Uh, the thing that we do load and unload are the art. So the animations and the rooms and sound effects and voice, that all gets loaded and unloaded. But the actual scripts um, are just kept in memory from the beginning. It really, really simplifies things. It makes writing the code a lot simpler because we had to, you know, in the scum days, you know, we had to worry about we couldn't access code that was in a room that wasn't actually loaded. Where now David and I can just call the code anytime we want. And so it's a lot simpler that way. I remember having to deal with stuff like when we had like multiple floppy disks where you'd have to either duplicate stuff on one side of a disk so you didn't have to have people flipping back and forth all the time because that got really obnoxious when you had to go to a room and you had to flip back and forth a couple of times to get everything loaded. Yeah, I remember on Maniac Mansion that we used two sides of the Commodore 64 disk and some of the rooms were duplicated on both sides of the disk to avoid that. It's just a lot of management of that kind of stuff that's gone away these days, which is really, really nice to not have to worry about that kind of stuff. Next up is Joel. How did you decide on resolution? Normally games in this style are done in 320 by 200. So in 1610 aspect ratio, yours is 320 by 180 with an active area of 128 pixels high. Any specific reason why to go with a 32 pixel inventory bar or was it just a gut feeling? The question of resolution is uh, definitely interesting. And it, there is no simple answer to this question. Uh, you are right. A lot of the rooms are the uh, 320 by 180. But we actually don't work in a fixed resolution. There are some rooms that are 320 by 180s. There are other rooms that are 420s by, I think, 172s. And there are other rooms that are 640s by, I think, 512 is the way that works out. So different rooms, there are like close-up rooms, medium shot rooms, and long shot rooms. And we do change the resolution of those uh, depending on it. Uh, it does change now why the inventory area is the size it is. That was just something where we would just 
played around with how much space we needed down there, how big we needed the icons and the sentence line, and it just felt like the right amount of space. It's actually a little bit different than Maniac Mansion and Monkey Island were, but it's uh, it's just kind of what felt right. So yeah, there was a lot of gut feeling. Next up, Jed Tinsel wants to know how exactly do magnets work? I have no idea. Do you guys, do either of you have an idea how magnets work? Sorcery, black magic. Yeah, I was going to say magic. That was my guess. David, do you know how magnets work? Magnets is kind of like metal. So, you know, they... Oh. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's a, a love thing. Interesting. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so we're going to go with magnets love metal. That's how magnets work. All right, next up is uh, P. Marin. I really hope we're pronouncing that name right. How is the Linux port going, and how will the game be played with a gamepad on the Xbox? Well, it's actually two different questions. Uh, how is the Linux port going? Uh, we have not begun the Linux port at all, and uh, we probably won't really even start the Linux port until, you know, maybe May or so. We are using SDL as the framework we're using to do window management and controller management, uh, the sound. And the SDL runs on Linux, so I think a lot of a lot of the hard work on the Linux port is probably done by the SDL, so I really don't anticipate it being a huge problem. I, I use Linux on my servers, but those are all headless servers. I've never really dealt with Linux dealing with the graphics stuff, so there's definitely going to be a big learning curve in, uh, you know, what flavors of Linux and and compiling and and how will the game be played on the gamepad on the Xbox? Right now, the game is playable uh, on a gamepad, and you do it by just moving the cursor around. And that's really how the Commodore 64 version of Maniac Mansion was played. It was there was no mouse on the Commodore 64. There was an Atari joystick you plugged in. So I think one of the modes definitely will be you just drive the cursor around. And I've played it, and it actually plays really well. Like you know, like that. I don't know that we'll do direct drive characters or anything like that, but we have, we have some time to figure that out. I don't think anything is really locked in stone yet. Do you guys have anything to add to any of these? Oh, sure. Yeah, I can talk all about Linux, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> David? Uh, That's why you make uh, the big bucks, Gary. I, I, I think it's because Linux loves metal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Gary is going to be reviewing all of the voicemail messages and doing the Linux port. As long as I get to use magnets in both cases. Next up is Charles. How will you be implementing the precision cursor accuracy shown in the Occult Bookstore on the mobile platforms? Well, the Occult Bookstore is actually a very special case. There's you know a lot of books in the bookstore, and I think those books are just a couple of pixels wide. Do you remember, David, how wide the books are? Yeah, it's like three or four pixels wide. Yeah, I mean, they're three or four pixels wide, and, and you really weren't meant to select those books. There's no puzzle in the game that says you have to go find this one particular book and pixel hunt it out. They really are just meant to just be swiping the cursor over. So in the case of mobile, you just kind of swipe your finger over it and look at the different uh, titles. There is one of the books that you do need, but there's a very special puzzle to find that book, and it does not involve um, pixel hunting. And we have another question from Mantis Cedarval. What do you think of the early 1990s Maniac Mansion TV series? <laughs> I'll let you answer that one, Gary. Uh, well, um, it was certainly nothing like what I expected. Uh, originally, we had actually met with um, uh, a couple people, uh, uh, Cliff, Ruby, Cliff and Alana Ruby, who were um, in charge of animation at Lucasfilm at the time, and they were doing Ewoks and Droids. And so there was actually interest in doing an animated Maniac Mansion 
uh, series, and Ken Macklin and I did some uh, concept work for that, and it was actually very close to the game. And then what happened was the Family Channel came to them. I don't think they sold it as animated, and they had this idea to do some live-action series. And so Maniac Mansion is one of the things that came up, and they really liked the name, but they wanted to change a whole bunch of the content, which they did. And when Ron and I saw it for the first time, actually, I was... I'm not going to say completely horrified, but I was really surprised to see that it bore sort of no resemblance to what we had been pitching previously. Um, I think Eugene Le Levy from Second City TV took it over and sort of, you know, reworked the whole concept. So I think the family was still the Edisons, but that was kind of it. And they were in a weird house, but then there was all this other strange stuff. So on the one hand, I kind of enjoyed it for what it was, but it kind of felt like a total disconnect from the Maniac Mansion game for me. I don't know, Ron, what do you think? Yeah, I remember when it was in production, I remember these memos coming by. Every memo would be about something they were changing in in the thing, you know, that Nurse Edna was now called, you know, Betty or whatever. K Casey, actually. Casey. And, and it was just every memo that came in, it's like it just it was like chipping a little bit of my soul away <laughs> on the thing as the game. And I think Dr. Fred is still left. Right. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Fred is the main thing. But maybe you can answer this, Gary. The the last name, the Edisons, wasn't that something that, t that the TV show created? Like we didn't have a last name for them. If I yeah, remember we, right. we, we had a name. It wasn't Edison. And they actually came up with that. And that did end up sticking. But that was the only thing from the TV series that actually kind of made it back into Day of the Tentacle. Yeah, because we never we never called them by their last names in the original one at all. No. So, I mean, I think that worked, but overall, I, I, I agree with you. It was just kind of this whole, um, I think it's a lesson in, you know, when, when something like uh, a property that begins, I'll say, as a comic or a game or something like that actually makes it to TV or a movie. Sometimes it's very similar, but for most of the experiences I've had directly has been changed a lot. I mean, the only other experience I had was Defenders of Dinatron City, and actually that was kind of close. And they still changed some stuff, but overall that was fairly close to what my original concept was. In the case of Maniac Mansion, uh, like, like you said, I was always surprised at whatever new memo would come down the wire, which was you know a complete you know redesign of, of a concept. So I think we ended up kind of with the name Maniac Mansion and not much else. And I, I wasn't in the loop with all the memos. So when I saw it, I was like, oh boy, I get to see this show. And I knew what the game was, and I was horrified. And I was like, oh, this is really awful. Because I remember sitting around with, with Annie and just being really excited that something I, I contributed to is going to end up as a TV show. And it just, it just wasn't funny. And, and I mean, that was the worst part. It wasn't funny. If it was funny and it was different, that would have been okay. All right, next question. Tim Tim Nice But Dim, I'm sure that's his real name, asks, guys, if you had, say, 20% more money, would you have A, made the game 20% larger, B, made the game 20% quicker, or C, made the game 20% better? So we'll just go around. David, what is your answer to those three questions? I think we have just taken the money and, and done what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> That's D. <laughs> D just pocketed the difference. <laughs> Gary. David took my answer. No, um, basically, uh, actually, I wouldn't have made the game 20% larger. I might have liked to, to get it done sooner. And I also like the, you know, idea of some, you know, 20%. So I'm, I'm sort of answering both B and C. Maybe 10% maybe of, of B and 10% of C to equal 20%. My, my serious answer is probably B. 
I think we probably would have had more resources on it in order to move it first faster. Yeah, I think my answer is a little like Gary's. It's probably mostly C with a little bit of B. I think it's about spending the money and maybe you know having some more artists or having more special case animations or what well, we mentioned earlier, the circus. You know, maybe if we had more money, we would have done the circus flashbacks in the daytime because we just had the money to do the art. So I think a lot of C and then B you know, making sure that we, you know, really do get the game done, uh, you know, in July or August, like we said. So that's kind of my answer to that question. I don't think it would have been any larger, though, because I think it's the right, I think it's the right size. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I don't I don't think the game, uh, the game needs to be bigger. It is kind of what it is the size it needs to be. It feels like it's similar in size to Monkey Island to me. Yeah, it feels like Monkey Island. It doesn't quite feel as big as Monkey Island 2. But it, it, it very feels very much Monkey Island size to me. And the last question goes to H. Dort. Why didn't you choose to treat the music the same way that you did the visuals, meaning sticking to the chip tunes and uh, use whatever technology you had to, today to do that? Yeah, I think the answer for me that question is I I really like the eight bit pixel aesthetic. You know, even though you know we have the option of doing a lot higher resolution, it's just something that I I really enjoy quite a bit. And I think with the with the more of the eight bit music like you found on the Commodore and you know the Atari and those, I didn't really enjoy that music. I, I always felt that I wanted the music to be a lot better than it was. So I think with this, you know, we have we have the the opportunity to make the music, I think, you know, a lot better in my mind. Where the visuals, I just, I like that old aesthetic quite a bit. So I wanted to stay with it. Same thing for sound effects. Uh, for sound effects, I, I felt that the sound effects we had to put up with were really crude approximations of what we were imagining. Now we can do exactly what we want. I think that the sound and the music kind of enrich the, the visuals to a point where you can see things that aren't really there because the sounds are, are realistic. Well, couldn't you say just the opposite, though? I mean, why? This is kind of of a rhetorical question, but I mean, can't you say the same thing about the the visuals? That if you if you had really you know nice smooth animation, that aren't the visuals enhancing it. Why, why is it okay to keep the visuals in this 8-bit style, but not the sound and the music? I think visually, it's more stylistically a choice. I mean, I see a lot of stuff that's being done kind of stylistically in this style. The other thing about it, honestly, in my mind, is that I really like the fact that when you have this sort of, I'm going to use the word, I've talked about this before, this iconic graphic look, and you can, your brain fills in a lot of the universe and everything else, whereas I, I think visually that works, whereas I think that works less so when it comes to audio. I might be wrong, but in my mind, that's sort of the way it works for me. I feel like audio kind of smooths over gaps. It's like when you when we start adding the music, it's going to kind of pull the whole thing together in a way that, it, you know, make it seamless in a way. I, mean, I just did a sound effect yesterday for a squeaking door that closes. Right now, the door animation is one frame, and it probably needs a couple more, but the, the sound effect carries a lot of it so you don't need you know 30 frames of door door closing um the sound kind of makes up for that 
And we are doing things with the graphics too. I mean, if you look at all the lighting that happens, you know, that we have shaders that are, you know, dealing with all this light coming off, you know, light posts or burning fires or, or whatever, that that was the kind of stuff we just couldn't have done back then. And it's, and it's very subtle and some people might not even notice that it's happening, but it, it really does just kind of enrich that whole experience. And I think sound and really nice sound and music do the same thing. I'll say, say one last thing about Mark visuals and that I feel that they are very compelling at this resolution I I I you know it's not like paintings wouldn't be compelling as well but there's something really compelling about Mark's stuff in pixel art when I look at it same with Octavia's stuff it's kind of like impressionist painting yeah it's really I mean I, I, I you know I get a feeling in my gut when I look at it and play it but you know I mean obviously I have a bunch of history uh, associated with that but I really do feel there's something really special about the graphics particularly what Mark's done did you have anything in Monkey Island where you could move an object pixel by pixel on the screen like we can now? Uh, not unless they were actors, because obje objects were kind of burnt into the backgrounds, and the backgrounds all sat at these like eight pixel boundaries. So that gives that frees up a whole lot of stuff for animation that we couldn't have done, where you you know you could have a gate sliding shut rather than having to do animation for it, and I know we can do it for the ones I worked on. All right. Well, I think that is all the questions. We have now clocked in uh, close to 40 minutes on this podcast, making this the longest Thimbleweed Park stand-up meeting podcast ever. So congratulations, guys. Oh, assuming Ron doesn't edit it down by half, which anything can happen when Ron takes it and edits it. Yeah, you, you got to be careful what you say on these podcasts. Okay, well, that's it. I will see you guys later. Okay, thanks. Bye. 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 I have one quick question for Ron while I have you here, and then I'll let you go, which is on the bug for the sheriff answer, answering the phone, you say something about the cord wrapped around his waist. Is that what you, what did you mean by that? Did you mean you actually wanted to see the cord from the phone wrapped around the guy's waist or what? No, it's, it's just when he's holding the phone, the phone receiver has a cord. Right. But all you want to do is you just want to have the cord kind of dangled down to about his waist and then it will just be obscured by the phone. And you won't because we don't want to really see where the cord is attached to the phone. So just kind of have this cord dangle down. by. OK, his waist. now I understand it. I, I didn't quite understand it. Sorry, but but that's clear. OK, thanks.